Welcome back to Less Stress Podcast. This is Jevilla, and today you're listening to a new episode. Most of my life I thought that being too sensitive, socially anxious, and even getting depression was my fault, and negative personality traits. I truly hurt myself in believing that. Trauma may change our inner and outer environments, yet so many things that are the symptoms of trauma, they are normalized or blame as unfortunate individual flaws. Trauma symptoms need to be talked about so we don't identify with them or get attached to them for the rest of our lives. Trauma damages but it can be healed through awareness, vulnerability, education, healthy relation and connection to our bodies. Trauma can be the gate to more connection, generational healing and health. Last month we had a hard conversation with Malgarjata Washinska, who is a genocide anthropologist and psychotraumatologist and a senior lecturer of NOHA Network on Humanitarian Action at the Faculty of Law and Administration at the University of Warsaw, Poland. Her research interests cover a range of topics from critical holocaust and genocide studies to museum and forensic studies. In addition to her research, she works on a daily basis with witnesses of traumatic events, including war refugees in Europe. I'm truly glad to introduce you to her, and let's go and listen to our newest episode. All right, hello everyone. It's nice to have today uh, our wonderful Malgosia Washinska on our podcast. Uh, together with Gabriela, we're going to dive in the topics of trauma and collective trauma, and I'm sure it's going to be deep. <laughs> so hi, Malgosia. Hello, everyone. Uh, hello. See, I am somehow shy to be in this conversation, and uh, it's always like that with me. It would be better <laughs> uh, in a while. Um, there are so many bridges you have to cross uh, your personal bridges as well when you are touching the trauma topic in public and even though i am lecturing about trauma and i am working with trauma daily every time when i'm speaking by myself um, embodied emotionally involved i feel shy i feel ashamed somehow and i think uh it's a sign that I am really working with trauma topic. That I am not treating it as something which is a metatory or the topic of my professional job. Trauma is a topic which belongs to all level of my identity and life. That's why it's always about <laughs> creating a bridge and cross this bridge in the dialogue, in the conversation, in the meeting, and in the end of uh, this journey you're really happy that you did it once again so it's about um, courage <laughs> and it's about being reward after and we are not talking about credits uh, academic credits or money <laughs> yes uh, financial recompensation we are talking about a spiritual uh, recompensation that you are really able to meet with somebody and to feel safe and to speak directly about trauma. This is amazing. And there is hope. Yeah, so thank you so much for starting on such an intimate note and really connecting all levels, emotional, mind and body to this conversation and listening to you and mirroring what you say. I can already feel that it is as um, heavy as the topic might sound. It also has a lot of rewards, as you said, in the end for actually daring to look at it. So thank you so much for agreeing to again and again, daring to look at it from all those perspectives. And maybe drawing from your last BBC interview where you actually shared your personal story and where belonging somehow resonates as a one word coming up from that interview. We're going to put it on the 
the links afterwards for everyone to listen. Would you share a little bit that your own personal journey of belonging in the world and how you then came to your professional interests? It was embodied, first of all. And uh, uh, before it became any interest, um, it was rather about how you breathe the unhealed trauma via body of your parents, grandparents, and of myself. So I was growing up um, in a home which was really beautiful, but it isn't about choosing the topic. The topic was already in my DNA. If we're talking about inherited trauma or collective trauma, but it's not only about trauma. It's, I would say, a very special kind of sensitivity and vulnerability. And as we know, there is also the power of vulnerability. So my mother, even though she was so fragile, and uh, I could realize that she is almost floating in this post-traumatic world. She was extremely creative. Uh, She had and still has a beautiful spirit. She is very spiritual. So I would say the vulnerability and trauma, it's something I was breathing daily. And there were both sides. There were and there are both sides of uh, this phenomenon. The power, the strength, the courage to live. And also, of course, the heaviness yes, of, uh, of this unhealed and by many years, and spoke uh, verbally uh, topic. So first, it was embodied. And it became a kind of interest when I was I maybe in secondary school because I remember every lectures I was choosing to read, uh, uh, like intellectually, early intellectually uh, process of understanding trauma without even using the word trauma, of course. I was interested in Second World War, in human condition in pain, how people were constructing their identity, identities. I was interested in myths, legends, ancient Greek, and uh, you know all this aspect which, in the end, looking right now from psychotherapeutic perspective, from psychotraumatological perspective, all these stories, which in the end are kind of therapy. So I was interested in um, nature. Nature also was a kind of story, uh, uh, alternative narration about the human and non-human conditions. Um, springtime, autumn time, all this representation, symbolic representation. So it was the first step of intellectual understanding of trauma and then was a topic then was a particular topic when I was uh, studying first musicology and I was very much interested in music and in traditional music also the way of the beautiful way how people are symbolizing their traumatic experience but still I never used the word trauma then it was rather about how to create the bridge with yourself with your community and um I was interested in more uh, ancient uh, intimacy, in more anthropological approach. So I switched from musicology to anthropological to anthropology. And I wanted to work with people who are telling stories about difficult experiences. I was interested about oral histories, absolutely around Holocaust and Second World War. And then it transformed by years. I was interested not only in the past, but I became interested in the present, in current genocides, in current conflicts. And then I became interested in the power of getting out from trauma. So the future. So it was a long journey from something which was very much embodied and in a home zone <laughs> sphere towards myths and legends, towards different way via lectures about past and history, towards 
confronting myself with difficult reality, current wars, and and the feeling that you are not safe, that you are not more privileged because you are coming from the Western countries. And then the last stage was to recognize the power of vulnerability and how people, especially in non-European countries, being completely honest, working with their traumatic experience somehow much more efficient than we are doing it in Western countries. I, my family, we needed maybe 80 years to process something. In Rwanda, people need <laughs> 10 years because the values are different. Their body their bodies are is more important topic. Uh, the embodied uh, trauma is much more important topic. It's much more on the side of experience than theory. There is no place for psychoanalysis in Rwanda, and and good, because at least you can explore the place, the space which is supposed to be safe, and you are doing everything to feel safe physically. In psychoanalysis, you can stack in your own mind by years and create theories after theories, how to describe Holocaust, how to describe this, how to describe that, what kind of phenomena you have. To summarize, the experience, embodied experience, was probably something which was an emotion, Emotions of music brings emotions. Um, meets brings emotions. Tears and laugh. So emotion was something what was the most important and still is the most important in my, in my job and in my personal life as well. Because I think that one of the most beautiful feelings is to have full access to your emotions without fear. And it's about sadness and it's about anger but it's about having an access and use it as a source of knowledge and strength. It feels for me to stop here at this point because the, the words um, embodied uh, trauma that you mentioned, uh, for me, it's also very personally connecting. Um, that's what I'm also trying to um, communicate in, in, in my work, and not just in trauma in, in the terms, but in general embodied experiences. And because um, it has, again, as you already mentioned, actually, in a way, answered uh, to, to my um, question was uh, how much more important is to feel um, our experiences is either past, present, and the future ones, and our bodies, and our um, emotions, and our senses and feelings, then just simply stay somewhere in the co concept, which is a very detached experience. It has nothing to do with our bodies, right? But very safe, and social sociologically safe, because emotions are dangerous for people who are afraid of emotions. And we are living in a society which is extremely uh, afraid of emotions. So feeling makes you vulnerable and expose you immediately. And uh, I understand how important it is to have a good personal situation. And uh, it could be two or three people around you. It could be your best friend, or it could be your parents, or your sister, or if not, because with family, sometimes it's difficult. It's about your partner. But in the end of the day, it's about two or three people, because I don't believe that you can really feel safe with your emotions in the society. You can create some kind of distance to the society, but at home and in your own body to feel emotions... It's so beautiful and so important. And I think this is something which gives you strength, which is giving you strength to create a gentle distance to the society, which never, never accept, to accept you with a full emotions. And I do believe in intention, intentional communities. Absolutely, yes. And I am following <laughs> what is happening. But as we know also, there are so many problems within intentional communities around intentional communities. So 
Sometimes you even think, oh, this will be a paradise for me because I want to be accepted with my emotions in the intentional communities, but the intentional communities are also based on concepts. That draws us to a very interesting, uh, actually, point because what you just said, I will draw a bit back about Rwanda and because uh, you have actually working experience directly in those contexts versus Western contexts conflicts in Western societies. So what really rings for me is that in both of the cultures, we have certain taboos where either we don't know the word trauma and you yourself said that for a long time you've been working or interested around it, but that psycho psychological trauma was not an actual concept uh, or knowledge that you know, like to name it like that. And I feel for many sensitive individuals and beings, regardless of which field, professional field they engage in, they would also not uh, name it necessarily until they hear it. The concept of like trauma can also be psychological, not, uh, you know, terrible thing which happened for you once in a lifetime, but something your nervous system can process at that time. Or, like in genocide context, quite severe bruising of reality. So when we think about this, two parallels of this world versus, you know, more embodied communities, I feel that in both of them, emotional intelligence is the thing which would help us to better navigate this world of emotion. And then, of course, of trauma itself or difficult, difficult feeling situations. And then when we have understanding and education that my emotions are as valid as my thoughts and I am allowed to have it as well as on the, well, uh, collective level, we are allowed to have it. Then we can start building that, what you said, intentional communities and trauma-informed society on a higher level. But before that happens, if I go to any intentional community, as you mentioned, I am still going as an individual not knowing myself and meet another individuals not knowing my, themselves. And then that's where many problems happen because we still cannot have that space of healing together because we both or many of us hurting. Absolutely. And that's why I think that concept is also, I mean, because we are talking about embodied uh, perspective and emotions and feelings, uh, but also the concept is also fine because sometimes you need concept to define something. The problem is that we don't have the right concept of trauma. This is the first thing, because this topic is completely detached from the body. And unfortunately, it was somehow conquered by psychoanalysis and connect trauma with some kind of inner processes which are in our brain and completely body was rejected. But so I am, I am on the side of education. And in this sense, I think the concepts are necessary to use in the society to create a kind of space via concept in which we can discuss what trauma really is, how we do understand trauma. But to do it wisely, uh, we have to go beyond our, our concepts and be open for others' concepts, different concepts, concepts which are... I was absolutely astonished when I realized that the word trauma in Kinyarwanda, so in Rwandan language, native language, Kinyarwanda, uh, means Gahahamuka, and it's a condition of the little calf. So the calf, which is abandoned by mother cow. And it's coming from the Middle Ages poetry in Rwanda. Cow is a kind of sacral, symbolic, uh, very important animal figure for the Rwandan culture. So they were describing the condition of little calf abandoned by mother. Mother disappeared for a little moment. And the little calf has Gahahamuka means the condition in which the little calf is shaking and it's freezed and it's crying. And in this beautiful poetry, love poetry to cows, because they were writing love poetry to cows as a sacral object, 
they were writing and they are saying that you have to hack this little calf. To hack the little calf and then Guhahamuka condition disappeared. Trauma in Kinyarwanda is Guhahamuka. So when after the genocide, psychologists came from Western countries, they provide the word trauma and also the concept of trauma, Western concept of trauma. But luckily, Rwandians, they were using, and they are still using um, a base of the Gohahamuka concept, which came before word trauma, which in English, in French, of course, because it's coming from the old Greek, trauma means a wound, yes? So uh, they knew that trauma is Gohahamuka, but in the same moment, they knew that trauma is not Gohahamuka, because Gohahamuka is about really hugging. And you don't need to think too much. You just need to feel safe, physical. And what I was observing in the societies in Rwanda, how the psych Rwandan psychiatrists are working with their patients and also how people who are living in a deep remote villages together, Tutsi and Hutu, without psychological supports are dealing with re-traumatization because, of course, there are many re-traumatization in Rwanda, both on Hutu and Tutsi part, still now. Especially that in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, there is a war, so triggers are everywhere. So people, of course, the re-traumatization is obvious in their life, also in the second generation and third generation. But what they are doing? They are hugging them, themselves. They are discussing in the way uh, to have a physical connection, uh, even between two men, not only between females or female and a man, but also between two men. They could discuss on the streets and hugging um, or, or take, taking their, or their own hands. And it's not about the sexual or erotic uh, uh, relation. It's not about an erotic context. It's about a supportive touch. It's something I have never felt uh, in Europe. When somebody is close physically, uh, when I am traveling by bus, of course, you are trying right, to, to make a step back. In Rwanda, people are touching you in a way uh, that... You've, that it's intentional, but not because of the uh, uh, sexual uh, interest. For instance, when you're getting out from the bus, they are cleaning you because you are full of dust. And, you know, oh, you have a little dust on your, on your arm. I would help you, to, uh, help you to get rid of it. And there are many little, little gestures which creating this uh, energetic, uh, ener um, the very special kind of in, uh, energetic um, uh, relation between people and also spiritual one. <clears throat> and we are talking, um, you were mentioning before about the taboo. So the, the body in Western culture is a taboo. So how trauma concept could be realized fully if the most important part of the trauma concept body is a topic of taboo? And unfortunately, also, uh, the body is, uh, is a concept which was uh, destroyed uh, because of pat patriarchal yes, uh, 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 approach uh, before of sexual abu uh, abusement. And I'm not saying that Africa is a uh, uh, perfect place uh, where body is uh, uh, sacral, because it's not true, because uh, we know what was happening uh, in Rwanda and how rape was used as a, uh, as a weapon. But in the same moment, the understanding how a traditional culture, uh, we were talking about myths and legends, and we also can see it uh, also in European myths and legends, how the body was important yes, to, to change something. Uh, how your activity, you have to walk somewhere, you have to walk through seven mountains, yes, you have to swim somewhere, you have to sail somewhere. The activity of your body was important. In traditional music, the body is also, it's always about, music is always going along with some physical ritual. Uh, it could be cooking, yes. It could be, um, it could be uh, sewing. Uh, it could be um, any other ceremony. But this is something what we miss in trauma therapy, that it's really going, uh, tr the trauma concept and the body's are should supposed to go, uh, go they supposed to go uh, alone uh, together and i discovered it in rwanda and it was it emancipated myself it helps me to emancipate it myself that even though i was working in such a difficult condition post traumatic post war condition and also was working in uganda and burundi 
and Democratic Republic of Congo, and it's very a difficult place to work because of the physical threats, um, military threats you have there uh, constantly active. But in the same moment, when I was in the relation with local uh, uh, people, in, uh, inhabitants, I feel completely safe because I feel accepted because they are focused on what is the most important. How do you feel, Margosha, today? They were asking me those questions. How do you feel? And they were asking about the body, if I am okay, if I slept well, if I ate properly, what if I would something else, how they can support my well-being via body. Nobody is asking the question in Europe anymore. Because you want to discuss about problems, you want to discuss about um uh, about concepts, uh, feminism, yes, post-feminist, and me too, they're concepts. And the most important, especially when I'm working right now with the war refugees from Ukraine and I'm working with their trauma, the most important questions are about the body. How did you sleep? I mean, do you need to buy a new clothes? What kind of clothes would you like to buy? Maybe you would like some dress. It's around the body. Because discussion about uh, how do you think, what do you think about Putin? How uh, about your uh, relatives in Russia? It's not really helping to stay stable. And the only things which helps you is to feel accepted with your physical energy. Because you are, as a survivor of traumatic experience, you are empirical evidence of trauma. Your body is an empirical evidence of what has happened. And I think it's a time to cherish this aspect of traumatic experience. And not from a victimhood perspective, from a perspective when you can see the strength in the body and the power of resilience. And um, also I have to tell you that uh, my life um, changed a lot in 2017, in December 2017, the end of 2017 because I got a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So um, I am dealing also with MS daily. And funny thing is that it was also one of the most emancipating moments in my life because I had to start to cherish my own body and talk about my body. And my family wasn't interested about my body. Oh, you are okay, multiple sclerosis, I mean, Let's talk about some movie. Let's talk about what you were writing about. And I had to speak about my body because this was a real problem. And then I realized how it helped me also to find a proper intellectual way to create a proper and adequate concept on trauma. So my disease also was um, not the end of working with trauma, opposite. It was the beginning. Rwanda was at the end. People were telling me, you are working in the hell. It wasn't hell. Hell is where the silence is. Hell is where the cold is, where you are free. This is hell. Where people are together, where people are interested in themselves. It's not a hell. I guess I just wanted to add, yeah, um, from the perspective of the body, um, I feel that in the body, whatever is in the body is present, and that we have, with that, we have the ability to, even in the worst settings, even still happening, uh, like the war, um, or, um, you know, surviving something terrible in the present moment, but paying attention to that and honoring the sensations uh, that are there, present, I feel it's such a, such a sensitive and uh, definitely vulnerable, definitely difficult way to navigate, but at the same time stay resilient and integrate. But trauma as a clinical phenomenon, its approach, your approach, your body approach to past experiences, traumatic experiences. And you can pass some traumatic experiences, but you don't have clinical PTSD. Because 
you have sources, resources, and maybe happy circumstances and positive vibration coming from the uh, closest world, which helps you to process traumatic experience via your emotions and your body. And then there is a high chance that you won't have post-traumatic stress disorder. But many people, after traumatic experiences, they have trauma, means post-traumatic stress disorder, because nobody allowed them to feel. And nobody allowed their body to be disorganized. And it's absolutely normal that your body is completely disorganized after traumatic experiences. So the paradox is that society, contemporary society, it's afraid of the constructions and the disorganization and your body will be disorganized and that it's it's a deconstruction after traumatic experience and you need this disconstruction to proceed it the world is afraid and the world is saying you are crying means you are you have trauma no you are crying or you are shaking or you are sometimes vomiting because you are processing and maybe thanks to a positive response from your closest one, from the um, humanitarian workers, what we are observing right now after uh, uh, um, during the war in Ukraine, maybe this 24 hours after traumatic experience in which your body can be disorganized will be so helpful not to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Trauma is silence. Trauma is being frozen Trauma, it's emptiness. It's being numb. Trauma is being somewhere else, but not in your own body, not in the reality. Trauma is mania. Mania in your own head because you feel only safe when you are in your mind in the war. You are activating via cortisol, adrenalina, the state in your body which is not realistic. And the problem is with education. And with the concepts we are not using properly in Western countries, if somebody is shaking, if somebody is like this little calf with Gahamuka stage phenomenon from Rwanda, it means that everything is fine. It's so important to educate people. And this is what I was doing. We have almost now, uh, one year after the war in Ukraine started. And um, uh, when the war in Ukraine started, and we had the waves of refugees in Poland, as you can imagine. And um, our society is severely traumatized still after the Second World War and, uh, and the communist time. And my generation was probably, is probably the first generation uh, who uh, had this opportunity to grow up in uh, free Europe, in free Poland. So it was a bit easier for, for my generation. But in general, first generation after the war, second generation, so our government, they were so much afraid of reaction of war, uh, war refugees from Ukraine because it was a kind of trigger for our own society. And the people were saying, they are crying, they are freezing, on this, uh, you know, they are shaking, they have PTSD, they have trauma. It was the first communicates we have. People are coming with PTSD. And then I started to educate. Uh, not in the sense like I am used to, because it wasn't at the university. I was going to television, to radio station. I was going everywhere, not because I wanted attention. I realized that we have to educate people and I, of course, I am much more comfortable with the left-wing stand of a, pol a political scene, but I was going to right-wing uh, television as well because I realized that it's the most important to realize that trauma is not a political issue and we have to change the concept and we have, it doesn't matter who is speaking about trauma in, in an adequate way. We cannot use the situation of uh, Ukrainian refugees to fulfill some fears we inherited from the Second World War in Poland. Because this is colonial approach. We are bringing people and immediately we're giving them the label. They are traumatized. They are unable to work 
properly in Poland. They are unable to uh, be healthy. They are unable to buy nice clothes. They are supposed to fulfill the victim perspective. This is the worst you can do with a person who, uh, who went through traumatic experience. To catch the person, to trap the person and the person's identity in the concept of victimhood. So it was very, very important to reduce this fear of sadness and the, this organization of the body as a trigger. Uh, no, it's not a trigger. And it's not, it, it cannot be a trigger for our society, for any other society. And uh, when I'm working at the university with the students, when, because I'm working at the department which is um, international and I am working in humanitarian action, in humanitarian help, and I am lecturing trauma, and I have many students from non-European countries. And they understand completely the topic without uh, reading uh, 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 books uh, and uh, um they understand how important it is, for instance, and I didn't know it, and it was one of the, my, my, one of my students' um, final, uh, final paper from two weeks ago. She wrote about acupuncture uh, as a method uh, which Medicine Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, are providing uh, in, um, in countries after natural catastrophe, uh, like in Nepal, uh, after earthquakes. So even Medicine Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders know that they have to bring something which is really connected with the body. And the girl, she is coming from India and uh, from, um, from Kerala. And she is very much engaged in Ayur Ayurvedic medicine uh, because she, uh, she was growing in, uh, in home, like, uh, in home, which uh, in this home it was uh, obvious. And then I have students from Ethiopia and I have students from Yemen and I have students from Syria and they understand this topic so well. Unfortunately, they are coming from countries which are really right now in the present time affected by the wars, affected by earthquakes, affected by crises, affected by Ebola viruses. And I don't wish Europe and I don't wish Western countries to be confronted with the reality which go beyond the concepts. I don't wish Europe war, but we have war since one year. So it's so good also to use this opportunity in an affirmative way. You touched upon something which for Europeans close to Ukraine is very sensitive topic. So you mentioned that we shouldn't use Ukraine's war as an opportunity to victimize people and put them certain labels on. Yeah, exactly. Do not victimize people. But at the same time, when we are now still exploring the topic of belonging in, in the broader sense. So we who actually are triggered as nations, Poland, Ukraine, you know, all, uh, let's say, eastern side of Europe, surrounded the... Uh, by this conflict much closer, then we are reliving, some of us, the memories, right? Our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation. For us who haven't experienced the war and the oppression, we have it through intergenerational trauma, right? And we kind of still have it in our system, in our body, subconsciously. So this really, really like, um, especially in the beginning of the war, a uh, strong wish to do something about it, to help, to collect, to, you know, act. This is the most important to help, but not to pat patronize, not to feel better mentally. You, you know what I mean? Absolutely, it's about helping but it's not about trapping, because in this trapping, in the victimhood perspective, I am not saying that they are not victims. They are victims. But I don't want to use victimhood perspective. Because 
Two days ago, I was uh, on Friday evening, I was taking part in the big discussion with the mayor, um, chief of Mariupol, Mariupol city. One, the Mariupol city was one of the cities which was completely destroyed. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation with his office and uh, with uh, Polish architects who are specialized in the history of reconstruction of Warsaw City after the Second World War, because Warsaw City was destroyed completely. So now, after this 70, 80 years, we have similar experiences, Mariupol City, Warsaw City. So we are discussing as um, um, about architecture as a therapy. Okay, And the meeting was organized by Ukrainian staff and all people from Mariupol. They were in Poland. And I have to tell you, there it was organized in such a beautiful way. It was so energetic. They were so... They were touching the point with the smiling. The atmosphere was great. Every, the organization was perfect. There was such a power. And, uh, and, and it wasn't about... It's not a power like in um, war zone situation in where you have to implement it fight or flight uh, fight or flight mode it's not about this crazy adrenaline perspective it's about integration they were so integrated and the problems we had in Poland in the beginning of the war, and I think it's not only in Poland, it wasn't only in Poland. People, after two or three months, they were completely astonished. How it's possible that Ukrainian refugees look, look so well, look so healthy? Or they want to work, they want to be happy, they want to go to clubs, they want to go to, uh, to walks, and they look like they are not victims. And because it, it shows that, of course, there was a tragedy, but also we stuck in the concept of trauma. And tra Ukrainian trauma was a kind of trigger also for our own trauma. Gabriel, as exactly as you said. But maybe it's not that we didn't want to consciously. It's more like we didn't know how to not treat, you know, the situation and the people as it is. And we're coming to actually very important point. I wanted to ask, co coming back to belonging, was when we have collective experiences which are traumatizing or difficult to go through, we don't want to forget. We want to integrate. And exactly what you mentioned just now, it naturally draws to that question of mine, how do we not forget and don't deny that that happened, but healthy, integrated in our system, transform it into the way that, yes, it belongs to the past, we own it as a history, and then we move on. We continue healing. We continue living in the present. Traumatic experience become a part of European identity. And we think that our own identity also belongs to trauma, which sometimes it's um, helpful, gives us some social benefits, but it's not healthy and it's not real. It is real in the past, but it's not real in our presence. So you ask a very important question, because I don't want to forget about the Holocaust. So what I did, after 70 years from Shoah, after Shoah, after Holocaust, I came to Warsaw. My family before the Second World War was from Warsaw, but then everything was in ruin. And uh, first my sister came to Warsaw. By the way, she is also a clinical psychologist working with trauma. So um, you see, <laughs> well, this is a really inherit inherited. 
I bought a flat, then I came to Warsaw. I bought a flat uh, in Muranov district. Muranov, it's a district which before the war was um, Jewish district. And during the war, Muranov was a place where there was a Warsaw ghetto. And um, as you probably know, Warsaw ghetto was the biggest ghetto um, in uh, Europe. And it was a hell. And it was completely destroyed. There was nothing. There are only maybe two buildings which survive. Everything was flat. And it's not a little district. It's quite a big district. And then after the war, uh, there was a very brave idea. Uh, two architects, Lahart and Shanaitza, decided that they are going to create a living memorial. And they are going to rebuild Muranov, but they are going to rebuild it from the rubbles, literally. And not only it's on the rubbles and it's standing on the cemetery, uh, symbolical cemetery, but also it's made from the, the rubbles from the ghetto, the house where I am right now. But they created in this way that it's very intimate, creating a very slow atmosphere. It's a kind of slow city, a garden city. There are many courtiers uh, with green areas, a perfect place for gardening, in the, and we are in the center of Warsaw. It's very quiet here. There are many animals here. Um, not only uh, dogs and cats, but also foxes are coming here, and we are still in the center of Warsaw. It's, it was in purpose to create on the side of life. And, of course, it's made from the rubbles. So... To respond to your question, how we can create the identity which is not dissociating from the past, but transforming physically the empirical, material part of the difficult, traumatic past to something which is on the side of life. And they did it in 1947, in 1949, very early brave concepts. When we're discussing with people from Mariupol, they have the same approach. So there is a power in the first generation, not only in third. There is a power with people who just experience the, uh, the traumatic uh, situation because they are close to the materiality and empirical aspects of trauma. By many years, it could be dismissed, removed, we can be dissociated, concepts, politics, for the memory of politics became more important than empirical aspect of trauma, but still people who just survived the difficult situation have ability, access to use it as a potential because they are closed to this, they are close to the reality of this topic. The worst you can do in trauma is to transform it to meta-terrory, which is safe and attractive, but it's not giving you any energy to transform. It's just giving you energy to hide behind. Um, so I probably live in one of the most beautiful and calm places in Warsaw. And everybody who is now, who will be listening to the podcast, if you once will be in Warsaw and you will be looking for traces of Holocaust, you will be very surprised how you can transform energy. And the funny story is that sometimes when you are creating a concept, it's, it's becoming a concept for elite, eliter. And if somebody, something, it's empirical, it's for everyone, it's democratic. So I uh, don't trust big monuments and I don't trust museums. Sometimes I even don't trust great cemeteries. I trust places which are inclusive and allowing discussion about trauma from the participatory approach. And I think this is something very important in working with trauma. It's not only for women, it's not only for Jewish, it's not only for, uh, you know, uh, etc. It's, it's very multidirectional. So um, in the end, we have the same bodies, the same physiology, the same uh, neurological systems. And this is democratic.
trauma on this level, on this embodied level, is democratic experience. I really quickly want to draw on what you just said. So two things. We wanted to speak about memory diplomacy as a concept I heard and read from you. And I found it like this is just a very nicely putting, you know, the explanation to what you just said, that it's another theme or way to name it. And it wasn't for me heard before. So I thought it carries certain space in, in this uh, memory diplomacy. So as you said, it's not about museum or monument sometimes. It's about sharing it with as many people as possible in the present moment. So my students who are coming from non-European countries and European as well, they understand Auschwitz as a concept, absolutely as a concept, but absolutely they understand more what does it mean to create a district from the rebels because they are constantly rebuilding from the rebels their own countries and they feel much more attached to places which are more open symbolically, which are creating a place for multidirectional dialogue. And still it's about the Holocaust, but it's different. It's not pushing you to dissociate. It's not pushing you to cry. It's not pushing you to, it's not pushing you into this elite perspective that you are praying for one particular nation. It's more about auto-reflective approach to yourself, to your nation. So the memory diplomacy and trauma diplomacy, it's how to not make it um, elitarian and how to not uh, trap it in the concept which is um, accessible only for people who are speaking English or reading English or who understand the history of the Second World War. Absolutely not. It's something which, it's a, the diplomacy should be about something which links us, which links everybody. And in the present moment, that's very important also for me, it stands out. Every nation, they have their own history. And we can make a competition, but it's not about that. Uh, there are some universal aspects of being afraid, of losing your relatives, of uh, being dismissed. And um, I think that this is a direction, uh, and I think Explore It brings uh, a great power uh, to uh, all of us because then you don't feel uh, alone. You realize that you're not alone uh, 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 with your history, that we are sharing the same physiological sy uh, system and emotional, neurological system, neurons, a system of neurons. And if people are asking me if it's really depressive to work with mass graves of um, human remains ident identification with families or um, Holocaust story, or is it depressive to live in Muranov as a Jewish person? Not, it's not. Because I met such a beautiful, strong people, and uh, they are powerful. And people from Mariupol I met two days ago, they were just perfect. They brought me energy. They brought me the light. So you, the, we are um, discussing uh, about rewarding, to feel reward when you are touching the trauma topic. And it's really happening. And maybe coming back a bit to Ukrainian situation and war and what you just said, inspiration and power they give to us by presence coming into our countries, but also what we see, you know, there, what's happening there, it's a reminder that in the deep crisis, any categories or roles, they unite and actually work for one goal. So we see in Ukraine how often people really, no matter where they come from, which backgrounds they're on or like, even municipalities and government, the support for each other is so big, huge, that it overpowers the actual threat. And we in the peace moments tend to lose ourselves in those concepts. And then that interdisciplinary cooperation is much harder than in the face of an actual threat. So 
to draw that also, you know, for all our attention that we need cooperation more than anything else in this world. But unfortunately, it's possible when we are facing the very big threat, usually. And we don't wish anybody to uh, be diagnosed with some severe disease or to be in the conflict or to be in a post uh, in a post um, earthquake uh, landscape because it's such a tragedy and it's such a paradox that people i mean using their sources of integration facing death and i would like to people to have easier access to the integrations and i don't want anybody any society to go through what jewish people and uh, Namibia people, and Native Americans people, and Rwandan people. I don't wish anybody. So, and Ukrainian, of course. Uh, but uh, definitely, we can learn a lot uh, from this conflict. And I mm, sometimes I do believe in post-traumatic growth. Sometimes I believe that this, this is also a kind of tricky concept. Because um, maybe... Um, Maybe you can make a mistake and treat uh, everybody who who, sur who survived trauma or war trauma. Uh, maybe you think that this person will be bulletproof and uh, you will demand uh, or you will de demand from the oncological uh, disease uh, survivor that <laughs> will be bulletproof because it's a post-traumatic growth or it's supposed to be a post-traumatic growth because you have already survived. So did I see some kind of disadvantages uh, uh, of the concept of post-traumatic growth but in general as you said we can learn a lot and where we have places which can allow us to share and not to make a competition from traumatic experience but really to share and learn and not using victimhood position for our own benefits or victimhood position to somebody else to trapped in this safe victim concept where are the places we can do things like that so before we started our conversation, because we started recording our conversation, we were mentioning about the university and how university is difficult to work with trauma. And uh, I don't think so. The university is the place of offering multidirectional memory and multidirectional trauma uh, safe space uh, to learn, uh, to teach, to learn, to experience together. Um, I don't believe that uh, Memorial of uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, Education Center is providing uh, this kind of uh, space, unfortunately. I don't believe that Washington Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington is providing this space. As the same like Yad Vashem, I don't believe it. I believe more that maybe intentional communities will provide spaces like that. Or it will be great to have some kind of public, private initiative, like quasi-academic, but also allowing somebody who is not from academy. So in general, also, I am very interested in looking for alternative forms of cooperation, uh, infrastructural one, but alternative. Uh, and um, it will be wonderful to have something like that. And how to make it more infrastructural also in terms of the future education about trauma. So my dream is to hack uh, one of the departments at the university one day, or at least to have an international grant, which open, which will uh, allow uh, us to be open for non-European knowledge and non-European experience, experiences and bring it to the academic knowledge. And in the same moment to... Um, um, cherish what is non-academic uh, and non-European, but also um, use the infra infrastructural space which Western uh, institution can give us. So I am optimistic because I see that our generation is uh, active in this field. That's why also we are meeting. And um, I see the future. <laughs> I always see the future. <laughs> so um, it's your what you are doing. It's it's fantastic because you are doing exactly that. What's supposed to be uh, done many years ago. 
thank you so much uh, for this um, in-depth conversation, <laughs> if I can say that. Uh, and I guess we come to our last uh, question. And this is kind of our, um, uh, I guess, a ritual to end with. Um, so we always ask... Um, whatever is but what is less stress for you i was thinking about it today i am very stressed right now because i am very overwhelmed um and um by my job <laughs> professionally um and then um, i was afraid that maybe this conversation uh, will not uh, go um well, because I am overwhelmed and maybe I am not uh, flexible and creative uh, anymore uh, intellectually and emotionally. And then I asked myself, what less stress means for me? And then I thought, it's not to run away. It's meet, to meet with you. Less stress is to confront. It's not about slow life. It's not about calming myself. It's about confrontation with the reality because then you realize that there was nothing scary in our conversation. It was unnecessary for me to, to feel stressed and overwhelmed. So less stress means for me To allow myself to feel stressed and to create a bridge which helps me to realize that uh, it was unnecessary and I am proud of myself that I tried to confront with my uh, stress and I'm not fading, fading away or hiding behind. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it feels like for me, on so many levels, that confrontation, whether that's the feeling or sense in the body, whether that's something that, as you said, the uh, uh, post-traumatic uh, world is a bit dangerous concept, but in a way, again, it's about how we are meeting ourselves or um, as a country or individual, as a small community in that this particular moment, and also about the feelings and the stress, you know, it's not about escaping or bypassing, but it's about meeting what is and then maturing from there. And that's for me, creativity, growth and future and present uh, all combined are there. So um, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. So thank you for that, because now I have more energy than I had before. You know, it's always like that mm, of trauma, that of trauma topic, that in the end you have more energy how it works because you are confronting you are not running away i think it's a really powerful concept even <laughs> we have to be careful with the word concept thank you so much thank you truly uh, truly grateful thank you for coming to the end of our conversation as always, I hope you take something from it and bring it with you. One of our main reasons for doing this podcast is, again, creating dialogues and raising awareness um, and interdisciplinary thinking related to mental health, trauma healing, and healthy rela relationality. I also would like to invite you to go and rate our podcast, whether that's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any other platforms that you choose to listen from. Also, I want to remind that if you want to support the growth of our podcast and support finding those amazing people, you can do that on Patreon by donating any amount you like, and our account is less stress. The last thing that I would like to mention is um, that at the end of this month we are having um, the fourth workshop uh, from the series of Body Wisdom and this time it focuses on relational well-being. 
So again, using uh, somatic therapy tools, uh, discipline of authentic movement, transparent communication, and trauma-informed knowledge, we will be holding a workshop at Her Space uh, in Oslo. That's again on the March 27th. And I'll put the registration link in the description. And I hope you can make it or invite people that you would think they would be interested in. So again, thank you so much for your time, for your openness. And I'll see you on the other side. This is Javila, and you're listening to Less Stress Podcast.